1: As many of you know, I come from the beautiful city of Cape Town, where I was lucky to start my medical career. And what I was charged with was saying, um, does experience actually count in asthma? This is the medical school I went to, and I think few could compete with that. And shortly after spending six years at that medical school, I entered this hospital, which is Victoria Hospital in Cape Town. I was one of six uh, housemen employed there. And we learned to do pretty well everything. It is also there that I gained a really healthy respect for airway obstruction. And airway obstruction is epiglottitis and croup, and those are pretty easily treated with a tube. But airway obstruction is also asthma. And asthma, I think, remains one of the most terrifying diseases that I've ever treated. You see a kid literally running out of gas in front of you. And I'm reminded of a 19-year-old boy who was a very mild asthmatic, he was shopping in Fashini's had an arrest, was brought into our casualty department with a silent chest. Uh, We did what we could, which was cortisone, and adrenaline. We put a tube in him, and I'm sure we contributed to his poor outcome because we pumped his chest up really high, and he ended up with a tension pneumothorax, and he died. And that left a marked impression on me. Now, there's nothing new about asthma. Asthma actually comes from the Greek word And uh, those of you who can understand, Greek will recognize the alpha, sigma, omega, mu, and another alpha, asthma. And it was pretty well described by a number of ancient uh, people. Homer, 2,700 years ago, describes a warrior dying at the end of a battle with asthma and perspiration. Hippocrates used asthma rather loosely. He mixed it up with dyspnea, tachypnea, orthopnea. And then Auretius from Cappadocia described asthma, as you can see up there. The cheeks are ruddy, the eyes protuberant, as if from strangulation. And so, well recognized over time, and if you come more recently, 1698, John Floyer and then Stuart and Gibson in 1896 really talk about asthma as we know it today. And you will see from the last two how the treatment of asthma actually evolved from treating the acute paroxysm, removing the exciting cause, and then manage them between the cases. To remind you, and I think this is a great slide, on your left you can see a normal airway with a nice patent uh, bronchus or bronchiolus, and on the right the components of asthma, which are bronchospasm, mucosal edema, and mucous plugging. And our treatment is really aimed at those three, but we can really only pharmacologically modulate the first two. There are four ways that we can do this, and I'm just going to speak very briefly about the first three, which is anticholinergics, non-anticholinergics, and those are bronchodilators, and then corticosteroids. Interestingly, and I'd like you to see what's in gray at the bottom here, is that the initial advocacy for treating asthma was to smoke particular kinds of asthma cigarettes. Now these were laced with belladonna, um, which is one of the anticholinergics and this will cause bronchodilatation. The belladonna comes from this particular plant known as the thorn apple plant and also from this, which is solanacea. And you can see that William Osler, the father of medicine, Johns Hopkins, um, actually used hypodermic injections of pilocarpine as part of the treatment of asthma. this is 1914. What, you, what was on the previous slide was, a, was actually a comment also by Oslo, because he was advocating smoking weed long before Justin Trudeau, and that's 100 years ago. For those of you in Canada know the relevance of that. <clears throat> so out of this comes ipotropium bromide. And I actually was surprised when I looked it up recently that this has never been advocated for the use of asthma. There are only studies looking at the use of atrovent in COPD, and yet it is very commonly used, it's got a number of different mechanisms of action, not really clear, but now practically every patient that comes into, IC, into our ICU is treated with atrovent. On the non-anticholinergic side, it's two main groups, the methyl which is coffee, aminophlin, which is a water-soluble component of theophylline, and then the more direct-acting bronchodilators. And again, if you look at the first slide, slide, sorry, the first line, you can see that adrenaline was advocated for the use and treatment of asthma in 1910 by Melland. Ephedrine came in a little bit later, and a metered-dose inhaler was introduced in the 1950s, which was associated with a sudden spike in deaths and this was because of the size and potency of the dose that was given. With education and change in the dose, this peak actually dropped. This is to show you what we now commonly use, but this is nebulized adrenaline from the 1930s. And you can see more specific beta agonists were developed in the 60s and 70s, which ended up with us using salbutamol. This is a paper by Dez and Jeff, both of them in the audience. Um, We initially used isoproteranol, this is before I got there, Um, but Jeff told me recently that he actually smuggled four ampules of um, salbutamol in from Melbourne. I don't think there was an REB because Des cracked these and gave them to a number of different children, and you can see on the vertical axis is CO2, time on the horizontal axis, and salbutamol is more effective over time at maintaining reasonable CO2 than um, isoprol was, and the next will show you that its effect on heart rate was not as bad. Steroids were introduced in the 1950s, and this is one of five patients, a young boy of 12 years old, who had severe asthma through the summer of 1950, and at this point in time he was given cortisone, which his asthma symptoms abated. They came back again, he was given another dose, and you can see, how every time he got a little exacerbation of asthma, he was given either cortisone or ACTH, and his symptoms abated. So this has now become pretty standard. And because of the risks of large doses of steroids, inhaled aerosol steroid became the standard. So what were we doing when I got there? This is two quick papers from SecKeds published in uh, 89 and the early 90s. And you can see that we were using beta agonists in 100% of patients. Theophylline was standard, steroids in most of the patients, and ivy solbutamol and isoproteranol were in about 48%. Atrovent was very rarely used. The important part is that the outcome is excellent this management, provided optimal use of bronchodilators and steroids and judicious selection for those requiring ventilation. Another paper from SickKids, and this is from Robin Cox, about the same era, using a very similar uh, medication strategy, looked at 19 ventilated patients who were all muscular paralyzed And you can see that what was considered um, permissive hypercapnia, CO2 is very high and was brought down to 45. That's a big change from earlier on where you aimed for more normal (coughs) gases, but a much more aggressive approach than we would use today. And you can see that pH goes up over time. Ventilator pressures, this is about 45 centimeters of water. So... That was what was happening when I arrived there. The principles of ventilation were to avoid all air trapping, allow the lungs to deflate, correct the hypoxemia, and try and avoid hyperinflation. What's happened since then? So, a couple of things I've learned, and this is from an Australian, and this isn't Mountain Equipment Co-op. If you remember what happens with this in a normal lung, at the end of expiration, your alveolar pressure is zero centimeters of water. If you look in the patient with airflow obstruction, asthma, you can get gas trapping. And as you get gas trapping, your lung volume increases. And as your lung volume increases, instead of having a nice compliant lung, you become very non-compliant, and the mechanics of the movement of your diaphragm and chest wall are inhibited because everything is really overinflated. So. I walked into a room one day and I saw one of our fellows, Margaret Schindler from Australia, straddling a patient and compressing the chest. And what she was doing was trying to move that very flat part of the PV curve to a point where you could actually get gas in and out of the patient's chest again. So rather than having a silent chest, we were once again able to ventilate it. I've seen that happen a couple of times, and Malcolm Fisher was the... um, principal author of this paper, and for those of you from Australia, I'm told that this is still a mechanism that's commonly used um, by paramedics in the field. When I started, we wouldn't have thought about using uh, bronchoscopy, but if you think about what you're dealing with, you're dealing with plugs in the major airways, and if you can get rid of them, putting a bronchoscope in, using DNAs, you actually get patients to improve. And I don't know if Sam's in the audience, but he will remember a couple of patients that we avoided ECMO by bronchoscoping them and using DNAs. So that's what's changed there. I've never really understood why magnesium is good for asthma, so um, I try to find some reason. And there were two papers published in The Lancet in 2013. And there's a very good editorial that goes with those. This is by Rowe that says, that magnesium seems efficacious in children with severe acute asthma. It's not effective in adults, and basically it should be reserved for those with very severe asthma. Again, if you come to our unit today, 100% of our patients will have had magnesium in our emergency room. I'm grateful to of it for these slides. This is something we always talk about, but I've never done, and that's the use of a volatile agent. And Ivor showed that in seven of the 18 patients in his unit that that were on mechanical ventilation, they used isoflurane. And with that, they had a very rapid um, change in both CO2 and pH, and were able to get these patients extubated much quicker than they anticipated. So this is something that I've not used. But again, if you're going to use it in our situation, we would have to do it in the operating room because we don't have the ability to scavenge volatile agents. ECMO, if you think about ECMO and asthma, asthma is probably the ideal disease for ECMO. You've got a single system failure that you know is going to reverse over time, and you just have to get them from one point to another. You have to balance that against the risks of ECMO, and this is data that Anne-Marie Gagirian kindly got from me, and you can see there are about 500 runs for ECMO, uh, ECMO runs for asthma over the last, or oh, since 1984. and As anticipated, like many things, the rate of use is increasing quite dramatically. And the outcomes, as shown in the previous slide, have been about a 75 to 80% survival. So ECMO certainly is something to use. How are we doing? There are two papers published in 2012 um, that you can look at, 13,500 patients. This is by Susan Bratton. And you can see there's huge variability in the way that medications are used to treat asthma. This is an important fact is that 60% of the patients in this study were intubated before a PICU admission. Complications are rare and death is even more rare. Kit Newth, an ex SickKids uh, fellow, also published in the same year, 2012, a review of 261 children requiring ventilation. And again, 178 or 70% of them were, ad- were intubated prior to admission to the ICU. And what I'd like to point out to you is this, that there were 11 deaths in this cohort, of which 10 were pre-hospital. So, if you come to us today, what'll happen? This is what we gave you before. What we've added is magnesium, hipertropium, that's about 100%. Here, we had permissive hypercapnia, 45. Here, we have permissive hypercapnia of 90 or more. We used muscle relaxation, which you never see anymore. Now we use quite a lot of non-invasive ventilation, and uh, I try to get my colleagues to remember when last we intubated a patient for asthma in the unit, and I think there's been one in the last 10 years. So our practice has changed quite dramatically. What's important, though, is that despite the variability in practice, the majority of patients who come into an ICU with severe asthma do pretty well. Most deaths like the patient I described in the beginning, happen outside of an intensive care unit. And so, this is an article, or the editorial that went with Kit Newspaper, and uh, the statement is made, an answer prevention may be worth more than a pound of cure. And I think what our role as intensivists is, is to make sure that our patients are all referred to chest services because, What happens outside of the ICU to all of these patients is the only thing that's gonna really change the outcome. And so, experience counts, and I think it does. I've learned to sit on my hands, and I know that that's very difficult when you're starting intensive care, but the older you get, the more you recognize that this is what you should be doing, and you just keep your eyes open to watch what's going on. Thank you very much.